Welcome back to the Comics Course. It has been a dog's age since we've been here. Uh, this is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering graphical literature 209 graphical, or sorry, English 209 graphical literature through society and history as a publicly available podcast. I am your professor, Hamby, who is once again no closer to earning his doctorate because three more members of my committee have died. Um... How sad. Uh, the official explanation was that they all went to the same barbecue restaurant and it had gas explosions on different days. Mm, interesting. I, I, I think the covering up of food poisoning is getting a little out of control when they start calling it gas explosions, is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not the only thing that's held us up. Uh... I have had one board member request that I rewrite my entire thesis in German, um, which I feel is unreasonable and I'm appealing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing that slowed us up is we had COVID. Yeah. It, it, it kicked our ass. It wasn't fun. Now, I know people have wanted to know, Professor Hamby, how did you get COVID considering you don't leave your office? Well, there's a story there. You see, my nutritionist uh, said that what would benefit me was improved electrolytes. And they had these new uh, chemical bottles that if I was feeling like I was dragging, uh, would have a combination of high oxygen content along with atomized electrolytes that would directly infuse through my lungs and, you know, help pick me up. And apparently there was some sort of confusion at the distributor and instead, they sent me for canisters uh, medical aerosol samples of COVID for research. Mm, normal mistake. So I was breathing that in for 24 hours straight. Um, I did recover. Tragically, apparently, the Muscatonic uh, you know, facility was completely out of the COVID antiviral. Um, my nutritionist was, Ms. Poyo, was a little upset. Um, she said clearly they're not up to the quality standards of their samples they used to be. Um, which I thought was odd phrasing, but I, I understood what she meant, that she didn't understand how they made that kind of mix-up. Mm -hmm. um, but I survived, as did you, because you got it from me, as did a whole bunch of other people. It was really sad. It was not fun. No, it was very unpleasant, and apparently it was some weird variant that came out of western china um dragon pox covid or something i don't know i mean i had a couple of little green scales you know on my left butt cheek but I think um that was just a you thing that was just a me thing yeah oh that might be a hangover from that thing back in the 70s we anyway let's move on with the actual podcast topic so, we're going to start talking about Neil Gaiman Sandman. The first thing I want to say up front is, of course, Neil Gaiman is the name associated with it because he wrote the series, he started it, and writers came and went. But there are many people who contributed in different ways to the Sandman. Now, I'm going to be covering the deluxe editions here because they're uh, recently published, they're easy to get, they're wonderful. I am amused that they're published under DC's Black Label now. Now, DC has gone through a lot of iterations of how they mark and promote uh, content that's meant for older readers. And, of course, the Sandman was a critical part of one of their original 
things of this, the Vertigo publishing line. And now it's Black Label, but they have a Sandman universe that's meant to be the continuation of the original Vertigo line, and spiritually, at least if not literally. And they're not publishing the Sandman omnibuses under it, but under Black Label. Um, which I find kind of amusing. And I wonder if it's because the Sandman universe titles, they try to skew younger to pick up interest from those that should not pick up black label titles, which some of the Sandman content definitely qualifies for. It was not written for children. It was written for adults. Um, and, and in a lot of ways written for existing comic book geeks. Now, the Sandman... Uh, for those who don't know, when Neil Gaiman published Sandman, and I'm not going to get real far into Sandman today, we're still sort of recovering from COVID, our energy's low, and I want to get the podcast out, and I want to get a solid start to it, but we're not going to spend hours and hours, which we easily could. But when Neil Gaiman did Sandman, he wasn't Neil Gaiman yet. He was that British bloke who wrote that book nobody read about a pop band. <laughs> That's right. He wrote a book, uh, a biography, basically, of the British band Duran Duran. Uh, and other than that, and some other music journalism, nobody had really ever heard of the guy until Alan Moore, who had received some very positive acclaim for his creative writing for DC, uh, which made uh, Jeanette Kahn very happy. Uh, Jeanette Kahn, basic, he basically said to the DC editorial crew, he said, if you want some kick-ass writers that will do stuff you haven't seen, you need to get your asses out of New York and come over here to the UK. Because we got the boys. And so, Car so Karen Berger was told, get on a plane and go find these boys. So Alan Moore went to go grab Neil Gaiman, who apparently was on some level a buddy of his. I don't know how much. I don't know if they were drinking buddies or just, you know, chatted on the phone or saw each other every now and then. But they were friends to some degree. Enough that Alan Moore's like, Neil, 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 you need money. Because you write about pop bands and nobody reads your shit. So here's a way for regular income as a writer. And Neil Gaiman went, fuck yeah. I don't know if he actually said fuck yeah, but I'm pretty sure that was... The spirit of what he said. And Alan Moore taught him how to write comics. How to write for page descriptions, how to write for an artist, how to write for a page layout, all those sorts of things. And Karen Berger told him that, he that she wanted him to reinvent the Black Orchid. I think he proposed it along with several other things, including maybe Sandman. So, but she took him up on Black Orchid. It was a three-issue limited series. And it followed in the wake of him also sort of reinventing uh, Poison Ivy for DC. He took Poison Ivy and he kind of recast her in a modern light. And he did the same thing for Black Orchid. It was very successful. I actually reread Black Orchid last year with, by Neil Gaiman. Uh, and it stood up. It was excellent. Very, very good. So... And by the way, the foundation he led, he, he set with Black Orchid and uh, Poison Ivy, led very much to the vision of Poison Ivy that we have now, and that is so famously paired with Harley Quinn and popular. So you can trace a lot of that back to Neil Gaiman. Now, when it came around to do The Sandman, 
he assumed he was going to be doing the same thing. And he came up with ideas for Wesley Dobbs, the Golden Age Sandman, the pulp noir DC character with a gas gun that put people to sleep, and sort of relaunching him in a more modern uh, aesthetic. And Karen Berger went, no, 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 no. This time, we don't want you to take the same character and reinvent them. We want a whole new character with that name. We want you to just go off the reservation and make some stuff up. And he did. And the result was the first couple issues, people went, eh. But somewhere along the way, people went nuts for it. They went bananas. And we've talked about it before, so I don't want to repeat myself. But the Vertigo line uh, was a con- direct consequence of this. The it, it fed into the creation of a market for collections of comics and graphic novels and bookstores. It changed. It was not the only factor, but it was a major factor, uh, along with works like Hellblazer, Swamp Thing. Uh, Why the Last Man Standing, and many, many others, uh, that changed the graphic literature market into something that wasn't just for kids anymore. And not just a few titles here and there, but a whole market of stuff for adult readers. Which further down the line became an even more radical change with things like Image Comics and many of the works they produce. So, at this point, I want to ask you, Rowan, Mm-hmm. Now, you've heard of Sandman a great deal. Mm-hmm. It exists out there. There's a very faithful adaptation of the Sandman comics available on audio for those who want to listen to it. There is coming up, I think, this month or next month, a uh, Netflix TV series of Sandman that's been directly worked on by Neil Gaiman. That's a reinterpretation, kind of an alternate universe Sandman, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Do you have any questions about Sandman at this point? Not, what's it about? Because I always hear about Sandman, but I don't really know what it's about. Well, you see, that's... Okay, that's something we're going to get into. But in a lot of ways, it is about someone who is unchangeable changing. Mm. It is about the Lord of Dreams, who is literally the Lord of morphology, of constant change. He he's primarily uses, in the book, the name Morpheus. And Morpheus literally means the god of shapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an idea that the Greek had, Morpheus comes from the Greek, that the dream realm was an actual realm of constant shifting. Mm-hmm. But despite being the lord of the shifting place, he doesn't change until this story. Mm. Despite being billions of years old. And there's some fascinating consequences to that. Now, let's go ahead and jump in, and it's kind of in some ways hard for me to know where to start with this, but I want to point out something here. Now, on the credits page, on on the dedications page, rather, they had the people who essentially were attributed with being the creative forces behind this volume one of Sandman, and... They picked Neil Gaiman, Sam Keith, Mike Dridgenberg, and Malcolm Jones III. And that's kind of important. And we'll talk about why. And in fact, Sam Keith is given second billing under Neil Gaiman. Now, 
I also want to point out as we go, these amazing covers. One of the things that did piss Sam Keith off as the primary artist of Sandman is that he didn't do the covers too. But with no offense to him, he couldn't have done these covers. Um, and, you know, I'm choking right now on the artist's name, which, you know, I feel bad about. Uh, but th these covers, these collage-style covers, which I especially feel dumb about because I have a book that's nothing but a collection of his artwork here in the office, and I can't think of his name right now. I'm going to blame COVID. COVID brain. Uh -huh. Not that I'm senile. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and by the way, for people who are curious, and I mentioned Sandman Universe, uh, Sandman Universe for DC launched about 2018. Most of the titles are long gone. But about three months ago, they finally launched a new one called Nightmare Country, which is being written by a horror writer we talked about just a little while back, James Tinian IV. Ooh. Yep. So here is the first actual page of Sandman. What do you think, Ro? Not what I expected. What did you expect? I don't know, but it wasn't this. Were you expecting, like, some endless collage of horrific imagery or something? Yeah. Uh, what we have, because, you know, on a podcast you can't see what we're looking at, uh -huh. is there's a bright blue and white border, and it looks like there's a beautiful sky, but there's an old creepy house with dragons on the front gate, and the this old got balding guy in a top hat, and we're told that it's 1916 in England. This I was about to say, the, the opening reminds me of an opening to an old British murder mystery. Yep. And he goes to use the knocker on the door, and it's like this demonic head with big horns. Looks like a gargoyle. Yep. And it's, But when he goes into the house, it suddenly changes. There's still bright colors and bright light coming in through the windows. But now there's this bizarre abstract page border, and there are skeletons among the ferns, and it's obvious the only light comes from the windows and is very dramatic lighting and look at the faces what do you think of these faces i don't know it's they're very detailed and very creepy looking almost and they ooze character mm -hmm. don't they i mean this guy looks like a middle-aged schlob who's desperate and this guy just looks like he's evil yeah and what's happening is the older guy is the head of a museum, and the other guy is a self-styled magician. Mm. He is of the Aleister Crowley bent, you know, where he believes and tells people that he's performing real ritual magic, and it's as much about drugs and sex as anything for him. Mm. But the, the museum has now brought him an actual book of real magic that he's wanted. Mm. Now... We then transition to this page where we see the stories of some people. A little girl in bed, her mom's reading to him. A poor boy in uh, the Caribbean who's sleeping with his family. A young kid who signed up for war, World War I. You know, this sort of thing. And they'll become important later. And then we see another child who's brought out of bed to go down with his father, the magician. And they're going to enact a ritual. Now, in just a couple pages here... Neil Gaiman, with Sam Keith's art, has told us a bunch. He's told us, this is a world where magic is real, but people don't know it. This is a world of Aleister Crowley, where Aleister Crowley might have actually been able to summon up a demon. 
And there are people who join these cults, but the wider world doesn't believe in it. And so they enact this ritual. They, And I'm going to go ahead and read it to you, just because it's fun. Sorry, I just bumped into Rowan okay. there. I'm used to the abuse. Oh my god, it's not a hate crime. I'm going to smack you upside the head's a hate crime. Um, <laughs> I give you a coin I made from a stone. I give you a song I stole from the dirt. I give you a knife from under the hills and a stick that I stuck through a dead man's eye. I give you a claw I ripped from a rat. I give you a name and the name is lost. I give you the blood from out of my vein and a feather I pulled from an angel's wing. I mean, it's cheesy as shit, but fun, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this sort of absurd, symbolistic, quasi-poetry ritual to chant. Um... And in this, and, and he combines this feather with the blood, and there's this huge circle with these cryptic runes on it, and the whole group of people and their cheesy cloaks are chanting. Do you really need cloaks for ritual magic? I mean, I, I would think, like, you know, tracksuits would work fine. But the style matters for the demon summoning. It, it matters? Yeah. I'm just saying they could update their fashion. The, I mean... The demon's like an old school. I don't know. I mean, cloaks are comfy, especially if you don't wear anything under them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I don't want to see these guys naked. Anyway, uh, with that said, Burgesses, who is the lead one here, does appear to be naked and not worrying about keeping his cloak shut. So I'm glad the panel is cut off around the navel level. Um, <laughs> and then we see this shape begin to take form. It descends from nothing, and we see it first, this long, elongated mask and then he forms and falls into the circle. And then we see the first ti official title page. Neil Gaiman's story, Sam Keith and Mike Drigenberg artists, Tom Clean letters, and so on. And it says, Sleep of the Just. And we see this figure with a long cloak and this weird alien. It, it looks like a giant insect head with a Petruscus crossed with... Sorry, proboscis crossed with a World War One sand, you know, gas mask, and then there's a pouch of sand and a giant ruby necklace, and he seems to have collapsed and fallen into the circle, where we find out he is now trapped, and we have this these great panels where we see from his viewpoint what is happening as they strip him of all his possessions. And leave him naked and cold in the circle. Ugh, it looks legitimately creepy. It is, isn't it? Now, what do you think at this point of Sam Keith art? It's amazing. He, it's it, super it is. expressive. Sam Keith, and I'm going to tell you this, he's also an amazing writer. That explains it. And he hates his own work. Why? He is. I'm going to go ahead and tell folks this. Sam Keith is neurotic. And he is an amazing artist, he's an amazing writer, and he says that all he makes is crap. That's what all good artists say. But he actually follows through to the point of not having the moments of clarity, and actually continues to really fully believe it. It's not just imposter syndrome, it's an imposter lifestyle <laughs> for him. Um, and indeed, he left Sandman after just a few issues, saying that everybody hated his work. Now there's no actual, as far as I can tell, foundation for this belief. Now, he he was not selected to do the covers, that's true, but it's just not the style they wanted for the covers. 
That doesn't mean it was bad. And that artist had previously worked with Gaiman on other projects. And yes, Mike Drigenberger came up with some of the original concept art that Sam Keith worked from. And Sam Keith has said, oh, I just took what Mike did and copied it. However, I've seen some of the Mike Drigenberger sketches versus Sam Keith's. Sam Keith did more than copy the work. I mean, Mike may have done some initial work, but Sam Keith did a lot of expansion. And well, indeed... You, well, you have to for concept art. That's and, why it's concept art. And Sam Keith has said that Karen Berger hated his work, which I've never heard her comment about what he's done, so I don't know if there's any truth there. Um, but he's basically implied that Neil Gaiman backed her up in this. And in fact, Neil Gaiman has gone to the mat saying that Sam Keith deserves royalties and recognition for his contributions and that Sandman would not look like he does and exist like he does and the universe would not be what it was without Sam Keith's art. Um, and, you know, by itself, that is just a thing, but you combine it with his behavior on other works where he's also bailed and been super self-conscious and not had faith in his own abilities, and a clear pattern emerges. Don't blame other people. But nonetheless, he is brilliant. Um, I recently had cause to reread his Hulk vs. Wolverine miniseries, which has no right to be anything but a stupid slugfest, and is brilliant. Uh, his creator title, The Max, that he did with Image, is beyond brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, but here we are, and he helped create Sandman, too. As we move on, we see those characters that we saw briefly earlier and what happens to them. The little girl whose mom was reading to her, she falls asleep and doesn't wake up. The boy, the dream realm collapses while he's in it and he spends the rest of his days as a zombie. The young boy that went to war becomes a special version of Shellshocked that he can't respond from. The dreaming is damaged because Dream, the Lord of Dreams, Morpheus, is now sealed off from his realm. And some people don't notice it that closely, but those who are closely connected, even mortals to the dreaming, are damaged by it. And we continue to see these great little pictures as, through Morpheus's eyes as events transpire over time. They come, they threaten him, then they cajole him. They try to do all these things to convince him to give them something. Now, they were actually trying to summon death and trap her. But instead, they got Dream. And over time, we see the magician Burgess do things like use magic to assassinate the museum head who brought him the book so nobody would know what happened to the book. And then we see the girlfriend of Burgess often disappear with some of the magical possessions taken from Dream. That's not good. Nope. There's a pattern I'm noticing. Yep. And eventually this Burgess's son does discover in a book who the prisoner is, Morpheus. And the dad is very happy, like, yeah, we have, of course, known that forever. And then we see the boyfriend, the lawyer of the magician who runs off with the magician's girlfriend, uh, bartering away 
magical artifacts for demonic protection. Hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, because Burgess wants to assassinate them the same way he did the museum head. Mm-hmm. And eventually... The woman uh, leaves, leaving the lawyer open to assassination, carrying the red ruby. And her last name is D. D-E-E. That's going to be important. Now remember, so far, this looks like it's its own isolated universe. Mm-hmm. Now we see those kids that have not been able to s- either can't wake up or can't sleep properly. They're now older teenagers. Mm-hmm. A decade or more has passed. Several decades, in fact. And then we see a man, Wesley Dobbs, sitting around who has dreams. Dreams. Dreams where he's told that things must be set right. And he's inspired to become the World War II era vigilante, the Sandman. Mm. By his dreams of Morpheus. Mm. And that will come into play much later. Now, note, uh, Karen Berger was closely involved with this line, and she later became the editor of Sandman Mystery Theater, featuring uh, Dobbs, also published under Vertigo. In fact, when she became one of the really big, big wigs at DC, it is the only title she continued to edit, personally. Oh, wow. Right. Now, as we go on, we see the magician Burgess become older, and we see that young little kid who walked down the stairs with the book, is now obviously in his 20s. And the magician has gone from threatening to begging to the point where he has a heart attack and dies in front of the naked man, the naked Morpheus in the cell. And Morpheus goes, Watch my captor grow old and die. No satisfaction still here waiting. And life continues for these people damaged by the damage to the dreaming. Um, to the point where we find out that the young woman who can't wake up has been, even as in her 20s, put in a home for the invalid, the old, where a man rapes her in her sleep. Oh. And she gives birth to a child, and she doesn't wake up even during the birth. Mm. Sleeps through all of it. Her no. Her name being Kincaid, which will become important later. The boy who grows into his middle age in the Caribbean, people call him a zombie, believing that he is some his soul's been torn from his body by a hogan. And as time goes on, we approach the 60s, where the Burgess's son is now leading his own version of the cult with his gay lover. And he continues to go down, and we get our first good look at Morpheus here. And he goes down and says, Hello, you don't have to be there, you know. The deal's still the same one that my father offered you. Power, immortality, I promise you won't seek revenge. Well, I know you can understand me. Say something. No. And so it continues, and he figures he'll just keep him trapped in there. And it stays that way until uh, Alex Burgess gets old himself and grows into an old man. And of course, 
Eventually, he's stuck in a wheelchair, and he continues to go down. By now, it's the 90s. Morpheus has been in there for over 80 years. And two generations. Which is why the young boy at the beginning is now a very old man. Mm -hmm. He comes down there in a wheelchair, and look carefully. What happens when he turns the wheelchair here? Oh, there's a crack in the... He damages the holding circle. Now, the people guarding the circle have been told repeatedly, be super careful, do not sleep. They're given amphetamines to keep them awake. But, of course, over all the years, eventually they get sloppy. And one of them falls asleep dreaming of a beach. And that tiny crack in the circle and a man nearby dreaming of a beach is all Morpheus needs to scoop up a handful of sand. Mm -hmm. And then thud. They open it up, figuring he must be dead, and he opens his hand and blows the handful of sand, sending them all to sleep, and opening his portal back to the dreaming. But now, he's been gone a long time. He flies through people's dreams, collecting clothes, collecting food, trying to nourish himself. And those poor souls who had been damaged by their connection to the dreaming wake up. And we find out a little bit about what these people are and why they're special. But that's not for a good while yet. But then we see the elder Burgess sleeping in his bed. He walks down a hallway. He gets younger. He sees a candle. He walks into a room where a cat jumps up on a chair and becomes Morpheus. Hello. You aren't talking. What's the matter? cat got your tongue uh, it's you that's right it's me I, I'm oh god I'm sorry it wasn't me it was my father he did it I never knew I wouldn't have I'm sorry I didn't Shh. enough there are offenses that are unpardonable can you have any idea what it was like can you have any idea confined in a glass box for three score years and ten, a human lifetime. Time moves no faster for my kind than it does for humanity, and in prison it crawled at a snail's pace. I was, I am, lord of this realm of dream and nightmare. You, your father, piped me down with this petty hedge-magicking, his two-penny spell. Me, you did that to me. You barred me from my realm with your foolish circle. You threatened, cajoled, and pleaded for gifts that are neither mankind's to receive nor mine to give. You had no thought for the harm you must have brought to your world. Lord, what fools these mortals be. That is a line from Shakespeare, by the way. Ah. Who also pops up in a later story. Joy. He finds a way into everything, it feels like. Well, there's a reason he holds the name in English history and literature that he does. Well, have you no excuse, no explanation, some reason I should not take reprisal? Uh, we, we didn't want you. It was all a mistake. We weren't trying to capture you. We wanted to capture death. What? You wanted death? Then count yourself lucky for the sake of your species. 
and your petty planet that you did not succeed. That instead you snared death's younger brother. You'll never know how lucky you were. Where are my tools? Uh, sorry? A pouch, a helm, a ruby. Your people stole them from me. Where are they? Uh, I, I don't know. That was part of the stuff Sykes pinched 50 years ago. We never saw any of it again. I see. So your punishment then. I will grant you a gift to reward you for your years of hospitality. I give you this eternal waking. So Burgess is laying in bed, sits up screaming. His oh. lover sits there with the newspaper going, Are you all right? It must have been a nightmare. A dream that our prisoner escaped. He was Oh, he has. He did. He's out, Alex. He checked out this morning. And then his head starts pouring out weird green stuff and explodes on him. And then Burgess wakes again. And then the nurse comes in and her head falls onto him and starts mocking him. And he just wakes up over and over and over again while asleep. A waking nightmare. Eternal waking. And that is the end of book one. So what we've established is a whole bunch here. One, this is happening within the DC universe. This is in the universe of superheroes. We saw a classic DC superhero, the Sandman, Wesley Dobbs, who, by the way, has a critical role in a number of other modern stories. It's interesting that among all the Golden Age heroes, the Sandman captured the imagination of many people the most. And in the 80s and 90s, some of the greatest stories involved him directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. Even Alex Ross's Kingdom Come starts off essentially with Wesley Dobbs' death and him passing a burden onto his preacher. Um, that was originally meant for Dobbs to observe the end of the world. So we've established that it's happening in the realm of magic. Now, magic has never been... It's had a weird history in D.C. Because especially in the 70s, D.C. published some of the great horror titles and mystic titles. But magic characters in the D.C. superhero universe have always pretty much been second or even third tier in terms of popularity, attention, presence. But right here, tonally, it looks like the 70s comics. Which Neil Gaiman has said, and we will see much evidence of in here, he is clearly a nerd who loves 70s DC horror comics. And I will tell you, I am also a nerd who loves 70s DC horror comics. And when I would run into those references when I first read this, I cheered. I was a happy man. Um, and in fact, many people don't know, because many of these references are indeed truly range from slightly obscure to a couple of them damn obscure. So he, he's established this happens in the DC superhero universe. Remember, there was no vertigo or anything at the time. This was just published as a DC comic. Mm -hmm. That's it. And we've established that it's happening in the realm of magic, that there's an entity who's the Lord of Dreams. Mm-hmm. And appears to have some sort of cosmic level connection to dreams itself. But really, more questions have been asked than answered. Mm -hmm. 
And here's a great irony. We're talking about this in big hyperbolic language. But the truth is, at the time this comment came out, when it very first came out, it did not even register on people's interest. Mm. I, in fact, and, and they had a relatively small print run. I actually have one of the very first ones ever published. Mm. It is right up there on my wall, signed by Neil Gaiman to me. Um, I went to the comic store, and I saw it, and they only had like three copies, and I decided to pick one up, because I thought it had Wesley Dobbs in it. And it didn't, but I love Sam Keith's art, I was digging the writing, and I just decided to keep buying it. And, you know, I, I, I would go to this comic book store on Tuesdays, because Tuesdays are new comic book day. And you'd run into other comic book geeks, and you... They could only pull your pull box so fast. So you'd stand around talking to the other geeks. Sometimes despairing for the future of humanity as you do so. But it was kind of... Even when they're complete and utter dorks, it's fun to talk to people with the same interests as you sometimes. Um, e e even if they need to broaden their interests sometimes too, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody cared about Sandman. Nobody was interested. And then somewhere in that first year, it exploded. And all these people who had paid no attention to it were like, oh yeah, I've been buying it since issue one. Yeah, I've been totally down on this. I'm, I, 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 I've been telling everybody else to read it. Lying motherfuckers. I didn't tell anybody else to read it, but I did under, I, you know, I was just like, this shit's going to get canceled before issue 10. Because nothing I really like ever survives a full year of publication. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Surprise. This one did. It did. It made it. Um, it is a wild ride. And I think I'm actually going to stop it right here. Ooh. I think one issue is enough to talk about for now. We, we've talked about how it impacted the publishing industry some. We've talked about its ongoing impact. We've talked about Sam Keith as an artist. Um, I am still choking on the cover artist's name. Which wouldn't they be on the front credits? They they weren't that I saw. Although, hold on, I have a signed Sandman cover from him over here. Hold on, not him. Hold my Really bragging. I'm not bragging at all. Mm hmm. <laughs> It would... Okay, here's the problem. I can't read the signature. <laughs> you love that, don't you? Yes. You do. By the way, this is an issue signed by all of them, including Sam Keith. Mm -hmm. Who does not sign stuff. Anyway, we'll call it there. Uh, we're going to be back in a few days on Thursday again. We're going to be doing an analysis of some dual issue things. Um, like comparing a Valeria and Bellette series from Aftershock Comics with King Conan from Marvel Comics. And some other comparisons like that. Which I think will be fun. Uh -huh. And then next week we're going to get through more than one issue of Sandman. And we're not going to go through it quite so granularly. I mean, I know I did some panel by panel here. But I also think 
you can read Sandman in some ways and look at it as a masterclass from Neil Gaiman in serial storytelling. I mean, how he introduces the setting and mythos in this is brilliant. And how he breaks down the story into elements is brilliant over the different uh, uh, storylines. Because, of course, at any time, he didn't know if it was going to get canceled. I, I, I suspect at some point it got so popular that he was pretty sure he'd be able to keep going till he was done. But certainly in the first couple of story arcs, including this one, which is called Preludes and Nocturnes, he didn't know. Um, what else should we talk about before we part for the day? Uh, I did finally see the trailer for Wakanda Forever. Oh, I didn't know there was a trailer out. <laughs> I have to admit the trailer is gorgeous. I still am not do not want to support a Shuri-led movie since the actress is a COVID denier. Um, and, I, you know, I'm worried about the script. I, you know, I, I, there was a lot I really liked in the first Black Panther movie, but the script was not part of it. The acting was gorgeous. The sets were gorgeous. The costumes were gorgeous. The themes were perfect. The actual writing didn't, I did not think was stellar. No. Um, Especially if you're a comic geek. Actually, I don't have a problem with where they broke from the comics, mm. except for the Wakabi part. That, that's so hard to get past. That was so annoying to me. That, that That is disrespectful to the source material. So I have a real problem with that. I did not like them making T'Challa relatively dumb compared to comics T'Challa. And I didn't like that they took away what Ta-Nehisi Coates did with Shuri, which tied her into the African experience of mothers and daughters and women mm -hmm. just to make her a cheap version of T'Challa. Okay, here's my pet peeve with writing with women. Okay. It always feels like they have to dumb down the men around them to make them be cool. Right. And which, so, to me, is the opposite of what they should be aiming for. So they basically made her a cheap version of T'Challa. Mm -hmm. When they had the opportunity to draw from Ta-Nehisi Coates' work, and, you know, frankly, with all the representation of characters from African uh, culture and comics, it's almost all men. Mm -hmm. They had an opportunity here to draw an existing material to do something really spectacular with her as an African woman character and missed it. It feels like they missed an opportunity to make her special and awesome in her own way and just took away a part of a man's character and just gave it to her. Right. Which and, feels honestly disrespectful. And then the third thing that I really didn't like was, you know, people said that Robert Jordan's, uh, Robert Jordan's, Michael Jordan's, Michael B. Jordan's uh, Killmonger solved the Marvel villain problem and that... You know, he was a charismatic uh, villain who made sense. I'm going to disagree with that. I think they're confusing charismatic with makes sense. Now, Michael B. Jordan was great. He was a great actor. Yeah. He was charismatic as hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will watch I, that man in any movie. He's phenomenal. Yeah, he was awesome. But his script he was working with... Hey, you know, Wakandans killed my dad, so I'm going to kill all the honkies on the planet. That's not 
emotional, intricate writing. That's lazy shit. Honestly, the actor was great. He probably saved oh, yeah. the role. But yeah. if you just look at the base writing himself, I thought he was boring as hell. Right. The character was crap. The actor was great. And I think people got carried away in the acting. Mm. The same thing happened with T'Challa. The actor, whose name I'm forgetting, um, who unfortunately passed away from cancer a few years yeah. ago. They were both amazing. I thought they were, they both oozed charisma in every way possible. They both steal the show. I mean, they, they were amazing. But they did it in spite of, of their the scripts, not because of it. If it wasn't for such the great acting in that movie, that movie would have been complete, absolute shit. Right. Well, not complete, because there were some other good things. True. The but... costumes were great. The The settings were great. I True. mean, when, when they did the sunrise over Wakanda, and they showed Wakanda, I mean, my heart just went, yeah. yes! But the movie was good in spite of the writers, not because of the writers. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I did that not think the writing was good. The staff worked their asses off. Right. To save that movie. I, I really think so. And I think the directing was good. Um, just, yeah, I got real problems with the script. And I'm not, sh I'm really torn. I will at some point see Wakanda forever, I'm sure. But I'm not going to go to the theaters mm -mm. for it. Um, it and I want to know where my next Shang-Chi movie is. Because that, that movie was damn near perfect. Yeah. Oh. My, my quibbles, okay, I could complain about things that are different from the comics. But I'm not one of those people. You know, the movies are going to be different and should be. And they not only made reasonable changes from the comics, they made good mm -hmm. changes from I, the comics. Okay, I will never understand the comics fanboys who care so much about the changes. If you want to see the comics, go read the comics. It, it, it's hipsterism. Hey, man, you, you know, you wouldn't think it was so good if you knew that they were in a band ten years before... Where they... I don't give a shit, man. I just want to look at the final product. And if they're not totally ripping somebody else off and just copying their work, I can evaluate this as this thing. Mm -hmm. It's cool when they do little references to the comics and they incorporate cool things from it, but it does not need to be identical. Right. And, and my problem with... It shouldn't be identical. And my problem with Shuri and Black Panther isn't that they didn't do her like in the comics. They could have done something totally other. My problem is making her a weak sauce version of Black Panther from the comics. Yes, it was lazy, bad writing to try exactly. to make an independent female character. Well, no, no. I mean, she can be independent female mm -hmm. character. She should be. Mm -hmm. But my problem is her only identity was being a little saucy and being an engineer. Mm -hmm. An inferior engineer to Black Panther in the comics. Mm -hmm. While in the comics... She's a matron storyteller with a ma spiritual and magical connection to the history of Wakanda mm -hmm. through the entire history of Wakandan women. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful and distinct identity mm -hmm. that Black Panther can't touch. Mm -hmm. T'Challa's no part of that. She's 100% her own character. Mm -hmm. While in the movie, she's a weak sauce version of Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And, his, and in fact, in the first movie, she's not even that. She's Q. Mm -hmm. She builds the stuff to enable the man to go do stuff. Mm -hmm. She's not her own character. Mm -hmm. Being saucy and bratty is not the traits that make you an independent, strong mm -hmm. character. 
And those are her only personality traits, Mm -hmm. which people may love Mm -hmm. because they love seeing a woman be saucy and bratty, Mm -hmm. but they're not the traits of a queen. Mm -hmm. In the comics, she's a fucking queen. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think they missed an opportunity for that. Yeah, like I said, it was it was lazy, bad writing. And maybe they'll build that up in the next movie. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not sure I care. Yeah, like I was saying before, they they saw that people love the cool female characters in the previous movies. And it was like the writers wanted to do something with her because of that. But instead of putting in the effort to actually write her as her own character, they just were lazy about it and just... Yeah. Took away the parts from T'Challa and gave it We'll to just her. make T'Challa a dude bro. Mm-hmm. A nice dude bro, but a dude bro. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll take his science engineering stuff and give it to her. And, um, you know, it's time to kick off and spend some of that Marvel money uh, with some Thai lady boys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming. I don't know. You're obsessed with the lady boys. They just, they're just an easy reference. It's cheap and lazy on my part. I need to come up with new things. Seriously. You're starting to sound racist. I am not a racist. I, I said you're I'm st- willing to offend everyone equally. <laughs> then you gotta. I, I'll work on you, it. You gotta diverse, man. I mean, I'll come up with some stuff from the Irish that my own ancestors will rise up from the grave and smack me in the head for. There you go. All right. So, uh, we've bullshitted some here at the end for like a good 15, <laughs> 20 minutes. We could um, probably go on longer. <laughs> we probably could. Uh, but I'm going to go have a drink and uh, delete some more emails from students. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Bye. Bye.